The diversities in regard to religious privileges in different nations is to be ascribed to nothing else than the good pleasure of God. A third form of election taught in scriptures is that of individual to the external means of grace, such as hearing and reading the gospel, association with the people of God, and sharing the benefits of the civilization which has arisen where the gospel has gone. No one ever had the chance to say that what particular time in the world's history or in what country he should be born, whether or not he would be a member of the white race or some other. One child is born with health, wealth, and honor in a favored land, in a Christian home, and grows up with all the blessings which attend the full light of the gospel. Another is born in poverty and dishonor of sinful and dissipated parents and destitute of Christian influences. All of these things are sovereignly decided for them. Surely no one would insist that the favored child has any personal merit which could be the ground for this difference. Furthermore, was it not of God's own choosing that he created us human beings in his own image when he might have created us cattle or horses or dogs? Or who would allow the dumb brutes to revile God for their condition in which as though the distinction was unjust? All of these things are due to God's overruling providence and not to human choice. Armenians have labored to reconcile all this as a matter of fact, which their defective and erroneous views of the divine sovereignty and with their unscriptural doctrines of universal grace and universal redemption. But they have not usually been satisfied themselves with their own attempts at explanation and have commonly at last admitted that there were mysteries in this matter which could not be explained and which must just be resolved into the sovereignty of God and the unsearchableness of his counsels. We may perhaps mention a fourth kind of election, that of individuals to certain vocations. The gifts of special talents which fit one to be a statesman, another to be a doctor or a lawyer, or a farmer, or musician, or artist, gifts of personal beauty, intelligence, disposition, etc. These four kinds of election are, in principle, the same. Armenians escape no real difficulty in admitting the second, third, and fourth, while denying the first. In each instance, God gives to some what he withholds from others. Conditions in the world at large in our own experiences in everyday life show us that the blessings bestowed are sovereign and unconditional, irrespective of any previous merit or action on the part of those chosen. If we are highly favored, we can only be thankful for his blessings. If not highly favored, we have no grounds for complaint. Why precisely this or that one is placed in circumstances which lead to saving faith while others are not so placed is indeed a mystery. We cannot explain the works of providence, but we do know that the judge of all the earth shall do right, and that when we attain to perfect knowledge we shall see that he has sufficient reasons for all his acts. Furthermore, it may be said 
that in general the outward conditions with which the individual is surrounded do determine his destiny at least to this extent that those from whom the gospel is withheld have no chance for salvation Cunningham has stated this very well in the following paragraph there is an invariable connection established in God's government of the world between the enjoyment of outward privileges or the means of grace on the one hand and faith and salvation on the other in this sense and to this extent that the negation of the first implies the negation of the second we are warranted by the whole tenor of scripture in maintaining that where God in his sovereignty withholds from men the enjoyment of the means of grace an opportunity of becoming acquainted with the only way of salvation he at the same time and by the same means or ordination withholds from them the opportunity and power of believing and being saved Calvinists maintain that God deals not only with mankind in the mass but with the individuals who are actually saved that he has elected particular persons to eternal life and to all the means necessary for attaining that life they admit that some of the passages in which election is mentioned teach only an election of nations or an election to outward privileges but they maintain that many other passages teach exclusively and only an election of individuals to eternal life there are some of course who deny that there has been any such thing as an election at all they start at the very word as though it were a specter just come from the shades and never seen before and yet in the New Testament alone the words eklektos ekloga and eklago elect election choose are found some 47 or 48 times see Young's Analytical Concordance for complete lists others accept the word but attempt to explain away the thing they profess to believe in a conditional election based as they suppose upon foreseen faith and evangelical obedience in its objects this of course destroys election in any intelligible sense of the term and reduces it to a mere recognition or prophecy that at some future time certain persons will be possessed of those qualities if based on faith and evangelical obedience then as it has been cynically phrased God is careful to elect only those whom he foresees will elect themselves in the Arminian system election is reduced to a mere word or name in use of which only tends to involve the subject in greater obscurity and confusion a mere recognition that those qualities will be present at some future time is of course an election falsely so called or simply no election at all in some Armenians consistently carrying out their own doctrine that the person may or may not accept and that if he does accept he may fall away again identify the time of this decree of election with the death of the believer as if only then his salvation becomes certain 
election extends not only to men but also and equally to the angels since they also are a part of God's creation and are under his government. Some of those are holy and happy, others are sinful and miserable. The same reasons which lead us to believe in a predestination of men also lead us to believe in a predestination of angels. The scriptures confirm this view by references to elect angels, 1 Timothy 5.21, and holy angels, Mark 8.38, which are contrasted with wicked angels or demons. We read that God spared not angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell and committed them to pits of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, 2 Peter 2.4, of the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25.41, of angels that kept not their own principality, but left their former habitation. He hath kept in everlasting bonds under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, Jude 6, and of Michael and his angels going forth to war, with the dragon, and the dragon warred and his angels. Revelation 12, verse 7. A study of these passages shows us that, as Dabney says, there are two kinds of spirits of that order, holy and sinful angels, servants of Christ and servants of Satan, that they were created in an estate of holiness and happiness, and abode in the region called heaven, God's holiness and goodness are sufficient proof that he would never have created them otherwise, that the angels are evil voluntarily forfeited their estate by sinning and were excluded forever from heaven and holiness, that those who maintained their estate were elected thereto by God, and that their estate of holiness and blessedness is now forever assured. Paul makes no attempt to explain how God can be just in showing mercy to whom he will and in passing by whom he will. In answer to the objector's question, why doth he still find fault with those to whom he has not extended saving mercy, he, Paul, simply resolves the whole thing into the sovereignty of God by replying, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Or hath not the potter a right over the clay from the same lump to make one part a vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Romans 9 verses 19 through 21. And let it be noticed here that Paul says that it is not from different kinds of clay, but from the same lump that God, as the potter, makes one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Paul does not drag God from his throne and set him before our human reason to be questioned and examined. These secret counsels of his, which even the angels adore with trembling and desire to look into, are left unexplained, except that they are said to be according to his own good pleasure. And after Paul has stated this, he puts forth his hand, as it were, to forbid us from going any further. Had the Arminian assumption been true, namely that all men are given sufficient grace and that each one is rewarded or punished according to his own use or abuse of this grace, there would have been no difficulty for which to account. Further scripture proof. 
Second Thessalonians 2.13 God chose you from the beginning unto salvation in sanctification of the Spirit in belief of the truth. Matthew 24.24 24. There shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24.31 And they, the angels, shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Mark 13.20 For the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened those days at the destruction of Jerusalem. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, your election. Romans 11.7 The election obtained it, and the rest were hardened. 1 Timothy 5.21 I charge thee in the sight of God, in Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Romans 8.33 Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Romans 11.5 In comparison with Elijah's time, even so, at the present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. 2 Timothy 2.10 I endure all things for the elect's sake. Titus 1.1 Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. 1 Peter 1.1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect. 1 Peter 5.13 She, that is Babylon, elect together with you. 1 Peter 2.9 But ye are an elect race. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God appointed us not unto wrath, but unto the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 13.48 And as the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. John 17.9 I, Jesus, pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. John 6.37 All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me. John 6.65 No man can come unto me except it be given unto him of the Father. John 13.18 I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. John 15.16 Ye did not choose me, but I chose you. Psalm 105, verse 6 Ye children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Romans 9.23 Vessels of mercy which he afore prepared unto glory. See also references already quoted in this chapter, Ephesians 1, verses 4, 5, and 11, Romans 9, verses 11 through 13, chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. 3. Proof from reason. If the doctrine of total inability or original sin be admitted, the doctrine of unconditional election follows by the most inescapable logic. If, as the scriptures and experience tells us, all men are by nature in a state of guilt and depravity from which they are wholly unable to deliver themselves and have no claim whatever on God for deliverance. It follows that if any are saved, God must choose out those who shall be the objects of his grace. His love for fallen men expressed itself in the choice of an innumerable multitude of them for salvation and in the provision of a Redeemer who, acting as their federal head and representative assumed their guilt 
paid their penalty and earned their salvation. It is always to the love of God that the scriptures ascribe the elective decree, and they are never weary of raising our eyes from the decree itself to the motive which lay behind it. The doctrine that men are saved only through the unmerited love and grace of God finds its full and honest expression only in the doctrines of Calvinism. Through the election of individuals, the truly gracious character of salvation is most clearly shown. Those who declare that salvation is entirely by the grace of God and yet deny the doctrine of election hold in inconsistent position. The inspired writers leave no means unused to derive home the fact that God's election of men is an absolutely sovereign one, founded solely upon his unmerited love and designed to exhibit before men and angels his grace and saving mercy. As ruler and judge, God is at liberty to deal with a world of sinners according to his own good pleasure. He can rightfully pardon some and condemn others, can rightfully give his saving grace to one and not to another. Since all have sinned and come short of his glory, he is free to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that will show mercy. And of the reason why any are saved, and why one rather than another is saved, is to be found alone in the good pleasure of him who ordereth all things after the counsel of his own will. It is for this reason that before God created the world, he chose all those to whom he would freely give the inheritance of eternal blessedness. And the biblical writers take special pains to give each individual believer in all the enormous multitude of the saved the assurance that from all eternity he has been the particular object of the divine choice and is only now fulfilling the high destiny designed for him from the foundation of the world. This doctrine of eternal and unconditional election has sometimes been called the heart of the Reformed faith. It emphasizes the sovereignty and grace of God in salvation, while the Arminian view emphasizes the work of faith and obedience in the man who decides to accept the offered grace. In the Calvinistic system, it is God alone who chooses those who are to be the heirs of heaven, those with whom he will share his riches and glory. While in the Arminian system it is, in the ultimate analysis, man who determines this, a principle somewhat lacking in humility, to say the least. It may be asked, why does God save some and not others? But that belongs to his secret counsels. Precisely why this man receives and that man does not receive, when neither deserves to receive, we are not told. That God was pleased to set upon us in his electing grace must ever remain for us a matter of adoring wonder. Certainly there was nothing in us, whether of quality or deed, which could attract his favorable notice or make him partial to us. For we were dead in trespasses and sins, and children of wrath, even as others. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. We can only admire and wonder, and exclaim with Paul, all oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, in his ways past tracing out. The marvel of marvels is not that God, in his infinite love and justice, 
has not elected all of this guilty race to be saved, but that he has elected any. When we consider on the one hand what a heinous thing sin is, together with its desert of punishment, and on the other what holiness is, together with God's perfect hatred for sin, the marvel is that God could get the consent of his holy nature to save a single sinner. Furthermore, the reason that God did not choose all to eternal life was not because he did not wish to save all, but that for reasons which we cannot fully explain, a universal choice would have been inconsistent with his perfect righteousness. Nor may anyone object that this view represents God as acting arbitrarily and without reason. To assert that is to assert more than any man knows. His reasons for saving particular ones while passing others by have not been revealed to us. He doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Daniel 4, verse 35. Some are foreordained as sons according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1, 5. But that does not mean that he has no reasons for choosing one and leaving another. When a regiment is decimated for insubordination, the fact that every tenth man is chosen for death is for reasons, but the reasons are not in the men. Undoubtedly God has the best of reasons for choosing one and rejecting another, although he has not told what they are. May not the sovereign Lord on high dispense his favors as he will, choose some to life while others die, and yet be just and gracious still. Shall men reply against the Lord and call his maker's ways unjust, the thunders whose dread word can crush a thousand worlds to dust? But, O my soul, if truth so bright should dazzle and confound thy sight, yet still his written will obey and wait the great decisive day. 4. Faith and good works are the fruits and proof, not the basis of election. Neither predestination in general, nor the election of those who are to be saved, is based on God's foresight of any action in the creature. This tenet of the Reformed faith has been well stated in the Westminster Confession, where we read, Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, Yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. And again, those good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and living faith, and by them believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries and glorify God whose workmanship they are created in Christ Jesus thereunto that having their fruit unto holiness they may have the end eternal life. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves but wholly from the Spirit of Christ in that they may be enabled thereunto besides the graces they already received there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they 
were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. For seeing faith and good works, then, are never to be looked upon as the cause of the divine election. They are rather its fruits and proof. They show that the person has been chosen and regenerated. To make them the basis of election involves us again in a covenant of works and places God's purposes in time rather than in eternity. This would not be predestination, but post-destination, an inversion of the scripture account which makes faith and holiness to be the consequence and not the antecedents of election, Ephesians 1.4, John 15.16, and Titus 3.5. The statement that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world excludes any consideration of merit in us, for the Hebrew idiom before the foundation of the world means that the thing was done in eternity. And when, to Paul's statement, that it is not of works, but of him that calleth, the Arminian replies that it is of future works, he flatly contradicts the apostle's own words. That the decree of election was in any way based on foreknowledge is refuted by Paul when he says that its purpose was that we should be holy, Ephesians 1.4. He insists that salvation is not of works, that no man should glory. In 2 Timothy 1.9, we read that it is God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time eternal. Calvinists therefore hold that election precedes and is not based upon any good works which the person does. The very essence of the doctrine is that in redemption God is moved by no consideration of merit or goodness in the objects of his saving mercy, that it is not of him that runs nor of him that wills, but of God who shows mercy, that the sinner obtains salvation is the steadfast witness of the whole body of scripture, urged with such reiteration and in such varied connections as exclude the possibility that there may work behind the act of election, consideration of foreseen characters or acts or circumstances, all of which appear as results of election. Foreordination in general cannot rest on foreknowledge, for only that which is certain can be foreknown, and only that which is predetermined can be certain. The Almighty and all-sovereign ruler of the universe does not govern himself on the basis of a foreknowledge of things which might haply come to pass. Through the scriptures, the divine foreknowledge is even thought of as dependent on the divine purpose, and God foreknows only because he has predetermined. His foreknowledge is but a transcript of his will as to what shall come to pass in the future. In the course which the world takes under his providential control, is but the execution of his all-embracing plan. His foreknowledge of what is yet to be, whether it be in regard to the world as a whole or in regard to the detailed life of every individual, rests upon his pre-arranged plan. Jeremiah 1.5, Psalm 139, verses 14-16, to 
Job 23, verses 13 and 14, chapter 28, verses 26 and 27, Amos 3, 7. There is, however, one scripture passage which is often pointed out as teaching that election or even foreordination in general is based on foreknowledge, and we shall now give our attention to it. Romans 8:29 and 30, we read, For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In whom he foreordained, them he also called. In whom he called, them he also justified. In whom he justified, them he also glorified. The word know is sometimes used in a sense other than that of having merely an intellectual perception of the thing mentioned. It occasionally means that the persons so known are the special and particular objects of God's favor, as when it was said of the Jews, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos 3.2 Paul wrote, If any man loveth God, the same is known of him. 1 Corinthians 8.3 Jesus is said to know his sheep. John 10 verses 14 and 27 And to the wicked he is to say, I never knew you. Matthew 7.23 In the first psalm we read, Jehovah knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. In all of these passages, more than a mental recognition is involved. For God has that of the wicked as well as of the righteous. It is a knowing which has as its objects the elect only, and it is connected with or is rather the same as love, favor, and approbation. Those in Romans 8.29 are foreknown in the sense that they are foreappointed to be the special objects of his favor. This is shown more plainly in Romans 11, verses 2-5, where we read, God did not cast off his people whom he foreknew. A comparison is made with the time of Elijah, when God left for himself 7,000 who did not bow the knee to Baal. And then, in the fifth verse, he adds, Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace, those who were foreknown in verse 2, and those who are of the election of grace are the same people. Hence they were foreknown in the sense that they were foreappointed, to be the objects of his gracious purpose. Notice especially that Romans 8.29 does not say that they were foreknown as doers of good works, but that they were foreknown as individuals to whom God would extend the grace of election. And let it be noticed further that if Paul had here used the term foreknown in the sense that election was based on mere foreknowledge, it would have contradicted his statement elsewhere that it is according to the good pleasure of God. The Arminian view takes election out of the hands of God and puts it into the hands of man. This makes the purposes of Almighty God to be conditioned by the precarious wills of apostate men and makes temporal events to be the cause of his eternal acts. It means further that he has created a set of sovereign beings upon whom to a certain extent, his will and actions are dependent. It represents God as a good old father who endeavors to get his children to do right, 
but who is usually defeated because of their perverse wills. Nay, it represents him as having evolved a plan which through the ages has been so generally defeated that it has sent innumerably more persons to hell than to heaven. A doctrine which leads to such absurdities is not only unscriptural but unreasonable and dishonoring to God. In contrast to all this, Calvinism offers us a great God who is infinite in his perfections, who dispenses mercy and justice as he sees best, and who actually rules in the affairs of men. The scriptures and Christian experiences teach us that the very faith and repentance through which we are saved are themselves the gifts of God. By grace have ye been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 The Christians of Achaia have believed through grace. Acts 18.27 A man is not saved because he believes in Christ. He believes in Christ because he is saved. Even the beginning of faith, the disposition to seek salvation, is itself a work of grace and the gift of God. Paul often says that we are saved through faith, that is, as the instrumental cause, but never once does he say that we are saved on account of faith, that is, as the meritorious cause. And to the same effect we may say that the redeemed shall be rewarded in proportion to their good works, but not on account of them. And in accordance with this, Augustine says that the elect of God are chosen by him to be his children in order that they might be made to believe, not because he foresaw that they would believe. Repentance is equally declared to be a gift. Then to the Gentiles also hath God granted repentance unto life. Acts 11.18 Him did God exalt with his right hand to be a prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and remission of sins. Acts 5.31 Paul rebuked those who did not realize that it was the goodness of God which led them to repentance. Romans 2.4 Jeremiah cried, Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art Jehovah my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed. Jeremiah 31 verses 18 and 19 What, for instance, had the infant John the Baptist to do with being filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb? Luke 1.15 Jesus told his disciples that to them it was given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but that to others it was not given. Matthew 13.11 To base election on foreseeing faith is to say that we are ordained to eternal life because we believe, whereas the scriptures declare the contrary. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts 13.48 Our salvation is not by works done in righteousness, which we did ourselves, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5 We are encouraged to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And just because God is working in us, we strive to develop and to work out our own salvation. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 The psalmist tells us that the Lord's people offer themselves willingly in the day of his power. 
Psalm 110, verse 3. Hence, conversion is a peculiar and sovereign gift of God. The sinner has no power to turn himself unto God, but is turned or renewed by divine grace before he can do anything spiritually good. In accordance with this, Paul teaches that love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, etc., are not the meritorious basis of salvation, but rather the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Paul himself was chosen that he might know and do the will of God, not because it was foreseen that he would do it, Acts 22:14 and 15. Augustine tells us that the grace of God does not find men fit to be elected, but makes them so. And again, the nature of the divine goodness is not only to open to those that knock, but also to cause them to knock and ask. Luther expressed the same truth when he said, God alone, by his Spirit, works in us the merit and reward. John tells us that we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. These passages unmistakably teach that faith and good works are the fruits of God's work in us. We were not chosen because we were good, but in order that we might become good. But while good works are not the ground of salvation, they are absolutely essential to it as its fruits and evidences. They are produced by faith as naturally as grapes are produced by the grapevine. And while they do not make us righteous before God, yet they are so united with faith that true faith cannot be found without them. Nor can good works in the strict sense be found anywhere without faith. Our salvation is not of works, but for good works. Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. And the generally saved Christian will feel himself in his natural element only when producing good works. James points out that a man's faith is spurious if it does not issue in good works. This is the same principle which Jesus set forth when he declared that the character of a tree is shown by its fruits and that a good tree cannot bear evil fruits. Good works are as natural for the Christian as breathing. He does not breathe to get life. He breathes because he has life and for that reason cannot help breathing. Good works are his glory. Hence Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify not you but the Father who is in heaven to whom the credit is really due. The Calvinistic view is the only logical one if we accept the scriptural declaration that salvation is by grace. Any other involves us in a hopeless chaos of views which are contradictory to the scriptures. There are, of course, mysteries connected with this view, and it is certainly not the view which the natural man would have hit upon if he had been called upon to suggest a plan. But to throw overboard the scriptural doctrine of predestination simply because it does not fit in with our prejudices and preconceived notions is to act foolishly. To do this is to arraign the Creator at the bar of human reasons, to deny the wisdom and righteousness of His dealings just because we cannot fathom them, and then to declare His revelation to be false and deceptive. It is dangerous presumption for men to take upon themselves with 
unwashed hands to unriddle the deep mysteries of God with their carnal reason, where the great apostle stands at the gaze, crying, O the depth, how unsearchable, and who knoweth the mind of the Lord? Had Paul been of the Arminian persuasion, he would have answered, Those are elected that are foreseen to believe and persevere. There would have been no mystery at all if salvation had been based on their good works. Here we have a system in which all boasting is excluded and in which salvation in all of its parts is seen to be the product of unalloyed grace, not founded on, but issuing in good works. 5. Reprobation Statement Comments by Calvin, Luther, and Warfield Proof from Scripture Based on the doctrine of original sin No injustice is done to the non-elect State of the heathens, purposes of the decree of reprobation, Armenians center attack on this doctrine, under no obligation to explain all these things. The doctrine of absolute predestination, of course, logically holds that some are foreordained to death as truly as others are foreordained to life. The very terms elect and election imply the terms non-elect and reprobation. When some are chosen out, others are left not chosen. The high privileges and glorious destiny of the former are not shared with the latter. This too is of God. We believe that from all eternity God has intended to leave some of Adam's posterity in their sins and that the decisive factor in the life of each is to be found only in God's will. As Mosley has said the whole race after the fall was one mass of perdition and it pleased God of his sovereign mercy to rescue some and to leave others where they were to raise some to glory giving them such grace as necessarily qualified them for it and abandoned the rest from whom he withheld such grace to eternal punishment the chief difficulty with the doctrine of election of course arises in regard to the unsaved and the scriptures have given us no extended explanation of their state since the mission of Jesus in the world was to save the world rather than to judge it this side of the matter is less dwelt upon this reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's revival books SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.